Our text this morning comes from the Gospel according to Mark, and uh, this is the Word of God. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? And Jesus answered, The most important is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second one is this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself, is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Lord Jesus Christ, we don't want to be far from the kingdom of God. Rather, we want to be completely immersed in the kingdom of God as we walk and talk and think and act in our daily lives. Father, teach us what it means to be born again and to be immersed in the kingdom because we've been born again. And to walk in that power with Jesus in the easy yoke with the light burden. And live our lives to your glory. We pray this in your name. Amen. <coughs> I feel like I ate something I'm allergic to and it's affecting my voice. So pray for me that it holds out. Uh, two, two weeks ago, I introduced uh, the concepts, the doctrines of justification and sanctification. And just by way of reminder, or if you're visiting among us, and this is new information to you, there are steps or processes that go into our salvation. And they go into leading up to the time where we pray and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and are born again, and then they continue right up until we step into glory, and even after that, there's a, there's a whole bunch of things that go into that that the Bible describes, and, and uh, we can kind of put them together. And we learned that those two, justification and sanctification, are two distinct parts of the process whereby God saves us. Justification is a judicial decree of God whereby He declares us righteous in His sight, because Christ's merits or his goodness are credited or imputed to us, to our account. And we are counted as righteous for the sake of Christ. In the same way, our demerits, our sin and its penalty, are credited or imputed to Christ. And God looks across time and he punishes Christ on the cross for our sins and he decrees that he will give us the eternal life that is due to Christ for his perfect obedience to God and his law. And that's, our, that's the essence of our salvation right there. That is the place 
upon which we stand for everything that comes after. We learn that justification is a moment-in-time event, at least so far as we experience it. It only happens once. It happens at the time we believe on Jesus and are born again. It's perfect. It's complete. It's entire in that moment. And we learn that justification is not something God does in us or to us. Rather, it's something that God decrees about us. And as Reformed Christians, we, we don't believe that you can ever become unjustified once you are truly justified. And those people who claim some kind of born-again experience or conversion, but then go on to live the same kind of life that they lived before, um, we believe they didn't have something and then lose it. We believe that they never had it and were faking it, basically. And so when they get to the end of their life and Jesus says, depart from me, I never knew you, it's evidence that they were never saved to begin with. Now, Jesus didn't unfriend them, all right? Uh, they never had the true thing to begin with. They are the, the pretenders. They are the tares or the weeds in God's wheat field. But sanctification, we learned, on the other hand, is a process which carries on from the moment we're born again until the moment we die and we enter into glory. And this is a process that God works in us and he works in us by infusing something into us that begins to change us. And he does it in all of our parts. He does it in our... And Jesus gives us a wonderful anatomy lesson here in this passage in Mark, doesn't he? He says, love the Lord your God. And then he lists all our parts. Your heart, your soul, which is different from your heart. Your mind, which is different from your soul. Your strength, which is just your body. And then your neighbor as yourself and everybody around you is your neighbor so that's your social context and that goes into making you who you are just as much as your mind does okay so from the moment we're born again until the moment we die God is at work infusing grace into all of our parts uh, into our hearts our minds our souls our bodies our social relationships the whole man as it says in the Westminster Confession chapter 13 and the Westminster Larger Catechism, question 77. But we have to actively participate in this. And this infusion of grace is described for us very accurately in uh, the book of Philippians in chapter 2, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says that we are to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That's our part. For it is God who is at work within us, enabling us both to will and to act according to his good pleasure, and that's God's part. So in sanctification, God gives us the will or the desire to act in ways that please him, and he gives us the ability to do those things that please him. But then we actually have to do those things from a God-given desire and ability. It's kind of like gravity. You can't walk without gravity, but if you... Uh, just rely on gravity to make you walk, you'll never walk. God's grace is there to sanctify you. It's in force. You uh, have to apply it. You have to take advantage of it. You have to work with it. And God cherishes our use of our regenerated will to freely cooperate with his will and creative action to bring about good things in the world that wouldn't happen if it wasn't for us working with God. And God's intention then is to form us into the kind of people who he can entrust with great power and then to say to those people whose character is fully formed in godliness, go do what you want, child. Here's a blank check and a great deal of power. Go do what you want. 
And what we want when we get into the proper state, what we want will bring him pleasure and will bring him glory, while at the same time it will also be something that we did. And he did with us. Nevertheless, God's regenerating grace at work in our lives is such that the true believer will not be without at least some evidence of sanctification before he or she dies. So in other words, the way you know that you have been justified is that you are being sanctified. Because you can't feel justification. You can't, it's not like God sends you a letter and says you are now justified on this date. You have to show evidence of it through sanctification. And if there is no sanctification, there is no evidence that there has been justification either. Which is why when we get to the issue, how do you know that you're truly saved? The answer to that question is not found in things that evangelicals have been putting forth in their evangelistic efforts since about the 1950s. Namely, if somebody asks you, how do I know I'm saved? Very often an evangelical will say, well, have you prayed the sinner's prayer? Or have you asked Jesus into your heart? Or did you come forward to the front of the church during the invitation? And during that process, during the asking Jesus into your heart or coming forward or praying the sinner's prayer, what is intended to happen, although it doesn't always happen by any means, but what is intended to happen is that at that moment you would be justified by his grace. And and I'm not saying that it's bad or it's wrong to do those things. I'm just saying that that answer is highly likely to mislead because the best information that we have is that 90% of the people who do those things are completely untransformed a year later, and that by their own self-report. You can find that in George Barna. You can find that in the Billy Graham organization and the statistics they keep about the people that come forward at a crusade, and then a year later when they follow up with them and say, how has your life changed? 90% of them, 90% folks, report no change whatsoever. And so that means if you take 10 people who have come forward and have prayed the sinner's prayer, however you want to talk about it, and those 10 people ask you, how do I know I'm saved? And you say, well, you prayed to receive Christ, so then you're saved. Then you're going to mislead 9 out of 10 people. And they will live thinking that they're going to heaven and they will die and they will end up in hell. And you will have misled them into believing that all is well the whole time. Now, your conscience might be able to handle that, but mine can't. And I am, as the scriptures say, under a stricter judgment. There's a lot more on the line for me. You see, the biblical answer to the question, how do I know I'm saved, is examine your life carefully over time that's passed since you prayed to receive Christ. Are you changing? Are your desires and your deeds coming around so that you both want and are able to do what Christ commands because you love him and because you clearly see how good and pleasant it is to walk in his ways? In other words, the evidence that there has been justification, which you can't see, hear, taste, or feel, is that you are experiencing sanctification, which you and others can see, hear, taste, and feel. So do the people closest to you who know you, do they notice a change? Do you notice a change? Let me just share with you a a true story from a man uh, who had 
gone through this process. Uh, and it's in a book called The Good and Beautiful God. And the author writes this. Craig is one of the people who took part in the experiment in developing a curriculum for Christ-likeness. After being involved in an apprentice group, Craig began to notice some real changes in his life in the way that he behaved towards his family and his friends and his co-workers. He is a zoo architect, which requires him to travel a lot. One day, he and his business colleague were flying back to the United States from Germany when they got stuck in the Atlanta airport and were told that their flight home would be delayed for several hours. Those several hours passed, and a few hours more. And then finally, they were told that the flight had been canceled. The delay meant that they were no longer, or that there were no options to get home that night, and they would have to spend the night in Atlanta. The anger level in the concourse was reaching a fever pitch. All of the passengers were forced into a long line to rebook their flights. You've been there, right? I've been there. Craig and his business partner stood in line and watched as each person spoke harshly to the young woman who was trying to help them. When it was Craig's turn, he looked at the young woman and smiled and said, I promise I'm not going to be mean to you. Her countenance softened and she softly said, thank you. Their exchange was pleasant and he got their flights booked for the next day. As they walked down the concourse, Craig was smiling despite the disappointment. His business partner had been watching him. And he said, Craig, I have known you for a long time. A year ago, you would have been enraged by what we went through today. And you would have lit into that woman at the counter. And Craig said, you know what, you're right. But I have changed. I knew who I am and I know where I am. I am a person in whom Christ dwells and I live in the kingdom of God who loves me and is caring for me. I'm frustrated, but I'm still at peace. We'll get home tomorrow and there's nothing for us to do. Anger doesn't help anything. I figure we might as well enjoy this unexpected turn of events. And by the way, the, the Popeyes in the Atlanta airport has excellent red beans and rice if you're ever in that situation. His friend just shook his head in amazement. I'm not sure what you've been eating or drinking, but you have really changed. It was what Craig had been doing and thinking for the last year that had brought about that change. Craig had followed his desire to become a different kind of person by signing up for the apprentice group and training for transformation. Craig was not alone. His desire to do the work and the changes he experienced as a result occurred only because of the work of the Holy Spirit not by his willpower. That's what happens when you get truly justified and then sanctification begins to happen. When you notice things like that beginning to happen, then you can rest assured that God has saved you and that he who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it in the end. Now, just to be clear, and I made this point last week, I'm going to make it again. Uh, in the Sinclair Ferguson quote is where the point was made. But just to be clear, you are not justified because you are sanctified, right? It's not like I'm good enough now and God can call me justified. No, no, no. You are justified as soon as you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. But justification and sanctification always and infallibly occur together. So if you see the one, then you know the other is present also. 
Now, the next question we ought to ask ourselves is this. Since sanctification is evidence that I'm actually saved, what then does a truly sanctified life look like? If, as Hebrews 10 or 12, 14 says, I cannot see the Lord without possessing true holiness, then what does true holiness look like? And here, once again, we find that the devil lays a great trap. When Jesus talks about the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, and he says, you will not see the kingdom of God unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus is referring basically to a merely human righteousness that is thought about in terms of external behavior. It's behavior that a person who is not truly regenerated, not truly born again, can attain to. It is merely external. It focuses on outward behavior, but it leaves the heart undisturbed and untransformed. And the problem with that is that you can't sustain it because the heart, which is the source of everything we do, is still unsubmitted by to, to God and is not receiving any of God's gracious transforming power. And when the pressure is on, or when nobody is paying attention, or when nobody's looking at you, the true inner person will assert himself or herself by doing sin and evil. And so what you get is a situation that is essentially hypocrisy, where there's this outward show of righteousness, this facade that's carefully maintained, where you do things that any unregenerate person can do, and you say, that's evidence that I'm saved. In the meantime, the heart is untransformed. You see, Jesus is not after behavior management. He's after a change in the sources of behavior. And the sources of your behavior is what part of you? The heart, right, the heart. And if you change the sources of behavior, you begin to cut the taproot of sin at its source. And the behavior will eventually come around right on its own because it will be a natural expression of what's in your heart. If you're having to bite your tongue, it's better to do that than to just blast somebody. But that means that what's coming out of your heart is ugly. And you need to try and stop it. No. By all means, try and stop it. But wouldn't it be nice if what came out of your heart wasn't ugly and you didn't have to stop it? That's what we're aiming at. And so when we zoom the lens out to the widest possible setting, what is it that we are after? What are we trying to cooperate with God to be turned into? And the answer is people who are genuinely possessed by love by love of God and love of neighbor. Now notice how Jesus links love in Mark to the law of God. What's the greatest commandment? The Pharisees wanted to know. Maybe they would have said the first commandment. Maybe they would have said the Sabbath, the fourth commandment. What's the, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus said the greatest commandment is not one of the Ten Commandments. It actually sums up the Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength and love your neighbor 
as yourself. Those are the two commandments that sum up the whole law of God. To love God with all of your being and then to treat your neighbor like you'd like to be treated. In another passage, Jesus asserts that the whole law and all the prophets hang on these two commandments. They are simply commentary on those two commandments. Now, Jesus says if you love him, you will keep his commandments. And we must understand that the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, existed before the virgin birth, and he was there at Mount Sinai when the law was being given to Moses. So the Ten Commandments are his commandments, not just the commandments that we find in the Gospels. So if you really love Jesus, if you really want to do what he commands, then you will find yourself tasked onto the Ten Commandments. As a matter of fact, you will begin doing those things joyously and freely and easily to the extent that you're motivated by love of God and love of neighbor. Now, it's interesting, isn't it, that, that we divide up the law and we're taught to in the scriptures into two tables. Commandments number one through four tell us how we love and honor God. Commandments five through 10 tell us how we treat a neighbor when we love our neighbor. And if you love your neighbor as Christ commands, you will not only seek to avoid doing them harm or wrong, you will do everything in your power to do them good, even if that neighbor happens also to be an enemy. And it won't be hard. That's the kicker. It won't be hard. It will just be the natural course of your life. And of course, your neighbor, who is a fellow disciple of Christ, and uh, is one that you will love with, with a special intensity. Uh, it, that is what Jesus said will show the world that we belong to Christ. And that, friends, is what God is after in our sanctification. So if you, if you get nothing else out of this morning, if you're all confused, I hope you're not, but if you are, the main point is if you really love God and you really love your neighbor as yourself, you will end up automatically keeping the Ten Commandments. And if you do that, you will keep the Ten Commandments from your heart. And as we'll see in a minute, it actually will actually be able to go beyond the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments are sort of just a baseline. And that is what God is after in our sanctification. That's what he wants. God is at work creating a people who are genuinely possessed by love. And the channel in which that love flows is the moral law of God. Because you can't love somebody and then not do right by them. That's, a, that's the world's lie, right? People, people sin against you, they stick a knife in your back, and then they tell you how much they love you while they're doing it. Not personal, they say. And you're like, well, it sure feels personal. I can't get this knife out of my back, right? Oh, I love you, but I just have to do this hard truth. No, you don't. You're hurting me. 
God is at work creating a people who are genuinely possessed by love, and the channel through which that love flows is the moral law of God, because you can't love somebody without doing right by them. And of course, the place where we find the statement of the moral law of God that is most easily accessible to us is the Ten Commandments. Now, we don't have time for even a brief exposition of the Ten Commandments today, but obviously we do have time for some basic principles, and they're those principles that we read in uh, the Westminster Confession, and that's that section six there, and, and I just want to go over those quickly. And if you want the scripture proofs from these uh, to, to, to prove to you that what's being said is, is in the Bible, you can find them uh, in uh, outline in the 19th ch- chapter of the Westminster Confession, and you'll have to go online and, and do that. Uh, and if you want an even more detailed explanation, look at questions 91 through 153 of the larger catechism. But here are some principles. Principle number one, there are three categories of law in the Old Testament. So when, in the New Testament, when you hear them talk about the law, you've got to understand which portion of the law they're talking about. And there are three categories of law. First, there's the ceremonial law. Those are, those are the things that have to do with rituals and sacrifices and what you can eat and what you can't eat. And, and the regulations that talk about being clean and unclean and what you can touch and can't touch. Uh, those, are the re- those are the regulations that marked out the Jews as a unique people. All of those things pointed forward one way or another to Christ and his ministries. And so they are no longer in effect because Christ has come. We find that in the confession in 19, uh, chapter 19 and subsection 3. Okay, So the reason you don't bring a, a, a bull or a heifer to church for me to slaughter on the altar here is because that's part of the ceremonial law of God. The reason we are allowed to have uh, bacon-wrapped scallops in, the, in our... Doesn't that sound good? Yeah, bacon-wrapped scallops. I think I just found out what I want for supper. Um, the reason you're allowed to have that is because the ceremonial law is passed away. All right? So we, we don't keep that. Now, there's great confusion about this. I actually met a woman who had a PhD. She was a, a, a minister in the mainline Presbyterian denomination, and she had a PhD from Princeton, and she didn't get this distinction. And we were talking about the homosexuality issue. And she was like, well, if you look in the Bible, it says, you know, and she was also more than a little obsessed with her bodily functions. And she said, if you look in the Bible, it says that when a woman has that time of the month, you got to put her in a separate place because she's bleeding and unclean, and then she can only come back and, and stay with everybody else after that's over and she's cleansed herself. And we don't do that anymore, so we should allow homosexuality and gay marriage in our churches too. And I was like, those are two different categories of law, lady. But this PhD from Princeton Seminary did not get that basic distinction. So if you get this basic distinction, you are smarter than that woman. Congratulations. There's a second category of law that we find in our Old Testaments, and and those are laws that God gave the Jewish people to run their civil affairs. And they're the kind of laws that we have on our law books today. You know, we have noise ordinances, and we have laws about guns and where you can carry them and where you can't, and we have laws about how fast you can drive, and all of those are the civil law of the state of Ohio. Well, the Jews had a biblically prescribed civil law. Talked about how to run court cases and witnesses and evidence and what the penalty was if your bull gored somebody and it had never gored anybody before uh, and it was not as high 
harsh as if your bull had gored somebody before and you didn't slaughter it or control it or whatever and it did it again, then you were more responsible. Those kind of things. It's the kind of things we argue about in court today. That's the second category. So you have the ceremonial law, passed away. The civil law, that ceased to be in effect when Israel ceased to be a nation. You find that in Westminster Confession 19.4. But there's a third category. And the third category is the moral law of God. And that was given to Adam, actually, in a very condensed form in the garden. And we're also told in Romans 2 that God had written it on the human heart. So Adam had this law written on his heart. If you think about it carefully, if you think about the story of Joseph, the story of Joseph happened several hundred years before God gave the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai. And yet when Potiphar's wife wanted to sleep with Joseph, Joseph said, I can't do this sin against God. Well, wait, the Ten Commandments hadn't been given yet. Nobody had been told, thou shalt not commit adultery. They knew adultery was wrong because the law was written on their hearts. It's the moral law of God. <clears throat> God also wrote it on the hearts of all of the offspring of Adam. So unless you're a complete psychopath with no conscience whatsoever, the moral law of God is written on your heart, whether you're saved or lost. And when somebody breaks it against you, you get mad when they steal from you, for instance. And if you are thoughtful and you find yourself stealing from somebody else or lying to them and costing them something, you feel guilty and your conscience afflicts you. That's because the moral law of God is written on the human heart. That's why all the major religions in the world have a very similar moral code because the law of God is written on the human heart. And then God published it or republished it on tablets of stone at Mount Sinai. And this law is the perfect rule of righteousness in brief form. And as I said earlier, it's divided into two tables. The first table lays out our duty to God. That's commandments one, to, one through four. The second table lays out our duty to our fellow human beings. That's commandments five through 10. So one of the things you ought to think about doing is memorizing the 10 commandments. Because that'll help you Fix these things in your heart. The moral law then obligates everybody to obey it. Everybody, past, future, present, everybody to obedience. Whether they're saved, whether they're unsaved, whether they're pagan, Jewish, or Christian. The moral law obligates us all. Now, principle number two. So three kinds of law, three categories of law. Principle number two, the moral law has three basic purposes. The first purpose is that we can use it as a general way of ordering our society to make a more just and equitable society. In other words, if you write a constitution and begin writing laws and those laws are in accordance with the moral law of God, your nation will be a lot better off, a lot fairer, a lot more just than nations that don't do that. Okay, so that's the first purpose. That's why historically in the United States, we put the moral law in two places. We put it in our courtrooms and we put it in our classrooms because we want people to see it and to know God is watching and this is the standard by which he's watching and judging. Second purpose of the moral law is to show the unbeliever his sin and his need for a savior. We actually talked about this in Sunday school. Somebody said, you know, when we do evangelism, should we do the kind
kind of God loves you, so you should come to Christ thing? And I said, well, I don't think so. And, and frankly, the, the old uh, preachers who preached the first great awakening didn't think so either. They would go to a group of people who were unconverted, and they would say, here's the moral law of God, and here are all the ways you are regularly transgressing that. Just examine yourself and examine your behavior. Think about what you've done this last week. Look at all the ways you violated the moral law of God. Do you know what the penalty for the violation of the moral law of God is? Hell. That's where you're going. And then after they understand the problem, which is that they are lawbreakers of a law that's written on their own hearts, then you can tell them the good news about Jesus Christ and offer them the gospel, and they will see it as good news because it will solve a problem that they themselves now see that they have. And they will come to Jesus. They will come to the throne of grace, and they will be forgiven. So the law is the preparation for the gospel. Second purpose is to show the unbeliever is sin. Third purpose, it also is good for the believer. Because it shows the believer how we ought to walk with God after we are saved. Okay, so three categories of law, civil, ceremonial, moral. Only the moral is still in effect. Three purposes of the moral law, order society, show the unbeliever is sin, show the believer how to walk in a way that pleases God. Principle number three, the Christian person is not bound by the moral law in the same way that an unbeliever is. An unbeliever is obligated to keep the whole law perfectly because he is born as a child of Adam under the covenant of works which God made with Adam and with all of his offspring in Adam. You find this in Romans 6 where, God, where Paul is talking about Adam and Christ. And we are dead in Adam because Adam made a covenant with God and we are his covenant offspring. So we are born. The minute you start sucking breath, you are obligated to keep the whole moral law of God perfectly. And of course, you don't do that. And that obligation is the criteria by which God will judge you and find you guilty and send you to hell unless something is done about it. The penalty for not keeping the whole moral law, the penalty for not keeping the, term of the, covenant, the terms of the covenant of grace is both physical death and spiritual death. And there's no exceptions. So there's actually, believe it or not, there's two ways to heaven. You can either be perfect and earn it, knock yourself out, nobody's done it yet, except Jesus, or you can come to Jesus. But there are technically two ways that you could be saved. It's just that nobody can do the first way except Jesus. Principle number four. God made a second covenant. Not with Adam, not with you and I, but with Christ, who is the second Adam. And through Christ, with all of his offspring, all of his elect, as we say, in Reformed theology. And this is called the covenant of grace. And in this covenant, Christ perfectly kept the terms of the covenant of works, the covenant that was made with Adam. 
And he received, as was his right, as was due him, he received the eternal life that was due him for perfectly keeping it. That's why it says in Scripture when it's talking about the resurrection, death could not hold him. Why? Because death is a judgment for sin. And he never sinned. So death could not hold him. And because he perfectly kept it, he then passes down that perfection, that merit to us. And that's the basis of our salvation. That's the basis of our justification. The first Adam failed. And he transmitted sin and death to all of his offspring. The second Adam cannot fail. And so he transmits life and peace to all of his offspring. Christ's keeping of the covenant of works is the mechanism by which we are justified. That's why it's so important and why I keep emphasizing that our justification is outside of us. Because if it was inside of us, we could unjustify ourselves just by disobeying God and walking away. But it's not. It's kept safe in Jesus Christ. And then we're kept safe in Jesus Christ. And so that's a bond that will never break. Nothing can shake it. Nothing can shatter it. That is your safety. That is your salvation. He'll never blow it like our father Adam did. So when the Bible says that the Christian is not under the law, which it said, for instance, in our call to worship text in Galatians 5, but is under grace, as it says in Romans 6.14, that doesn't mean that the Christian isn't obligated to keep the Ten Commandments. It's not like, hey, I've come to Jesus, now I can steal all I want and not be found guilty for it. No, no. Rather, it means we aren't obligated to the law as a covenant of works. Therefore, we're not under the penalty of death and the penalty of hell for failing to keep perfectly the moral law. But the law isn't just a ruler which God uses to measure us. The law is also an exposition of God's character. And since the whole point of our salvation is to become children of our heavenly Father who bear his likeness in the world, then the moral law becomes for us a target that we aim at daily. And obedience to the moral law is how we walk in the world in a way that pleases our heavenly Father. It's how we show forth the family likeness. So we do things like don't lie and keep our promises, because that's what God is like. God said, I'll never lie, I can't lie, and I'll never break my promises. And we say, okay, I wanna be like Jesus, who can't lie and would never break his promises. And what does the moral law say? Don't lie and don't break your promises. So you see how it's all coming together now, and you cannot ever separate the moral law of God from the children of God. It's how our heavenly Father teaches us to walk, and it pleases him. And that's how we exhibit Christ-likeness. Principle number five. The Ten Commandments actually stand for much more than they explicitly say. And Jesus teaches us this pattern when he relates anger to murder, and when he relates lust to adultery. And he says, well, you're congratulating yourself because you haven't murdered anyone. Yet you dwell in anger and rage and contempt and rejection. And frankly, you'd be really glad if that person dropped dead. Well, Jesus says, then you're violating the sixth commandment. You congratulate yourself because you haven't committed 
the, the filthy act of adultery. But you're walking around lusting after every woman that you can look at. And you're committing adultery in your heart. And what Jesus is saying there is, you've got the intent. All you're lacking is the opportunity. Therefore, what's in your heart condemns you, and you violate the fifth commandment. No, that's the seventh commandment, sorry. So that's how, we, that's how the moral law stands for more than it explicitly says. And, and Jesus teaches us this. And you can find this and other useful teaching in question 99 of the larger catechism. Now, we've seen, I hope, that the blueprint that describes sanctification to us is the moral law, as summarily comprehended in the Ten Commandments. But the goodness described by the law isn't the only goodness that ought to mark the Christian life, is it? When we think about the Christian people that we've known over our lives who were the most Christ-like and the most godly and who we respected and loved the most, it wasn't just that they'd never steal from us or lie to us, is it? That's not what we loved about them. I mean, of course they wouldn't do that. That's a no-brainer. But what made us love them and what made their personality so attractive was a deeper kind of goodness. It's that they were gentle that they were patient, that they were kind, that they loved us, that their lives just exuded peace and joy. You, you ever know somebody like that? They were deeply good. And they reflected the radiance of God's goodness to us. And we could see that because they were good. And then we could see that, that the God that they served was good in exactly the same way, that he is just a deeper kind of goodness. Now that, friends, is the fruit of the Spirit. From Galatians 5, verses 22 through 24. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And the fruit of the Spirit is produced by you, or in you, by the Holy Spirit, who is dwelling in you. Now, once again, this is a vast topic that we can't treat today. So I'm just going to state something today and leave it for you to ponder because the hour is growing late and I'm aware of that. The Bible indicates that the Holy Spirit has several different ministries within the life of the believer. And the Bible indicates that we can have the Spirit in a greater measure or a lesser measure. There are distinct things that the Spirit accomplishes, and some he does unilaterally without our cooperation and sovereignly, but some of them require our cooperation with the Spirit. And the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit seem to ebb and flow in a life. And a large part of that ebbing and flowing is as a response to either our sin or our obedience. Have you ever had a time where you just you're in prayer and you feel the Holy Spirit very close to you and you're enjoying his presence and then you turn and you commit some sin and he flees. His, he doesn't go, he'll never go away, but his sensible presence is withdrawn and you feel it and you're grieved by it. I, within the last year or so, I was, I've been doing a lot of experiments with prayer, just trying to understand prayer and really learn how to pray well. And, and, and I, was, I was praying and something began to happen that I'd been, asked, I'd been asking God for, for it to happen. And it was wonderful. 
And I was really loving it. I was like, holy cow, I can't believe that this is actually happening. I've been longing for this for a long time. And then my thoughts went to something that was just centered on my pride and vanity. And immediately, gone. And I was like, no, wait, 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 come back. And he's like, not today. <laughs> and, you, and you're like, dang, sin is so not worth it. I want that back. I'm enjoying that. And I ruined it. And he said, learn that lesson and learn it well. Now, here's what Jesus does in John 14, and you can look for yourself and really investigate the verse because it's not obvious at the beginning until you really begin to dig and think. But Jesus seems to link the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit in a life to the discipline of obedience to the commands of Christ. In other words, the more obedient you are, the more spiritual power you will have. Because the presence of the Spirit's power is greater within you. Obedience to the commandments of Jesus, which includes the Ten Commandments, lines you up with the kingdom of God. And it opens up more channels or conduits for the power of God to flow through your life and then out to others. And this is exactly what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's interesting when you look at the Greek, when Paul says, do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. There are two words in Greek for filled. One would be like filling a cup up and you can only put so much in and it's gonna overflow if you put any more in. That is not the word that Paul uses. Instead, Paul uses the word for sails on a ship being filled with wind. And unless there is a constant infusion of wind into the sails, the, the ship doesn't go anywhere. And what Jesus is saying is the presence and power of the Holy Spirit in your life is like a ship's sails being filled with wind. It drives the ship forward to the destination that the pilot desires. And he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit in that way because it will move your life in a certain way when that happens. Being filled with the Holy Spirit on a regular, ongoing basis will produce in you the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. So here's the takeaway. If you want to become a person who is possessed by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, the way that that happens is to seek being filled with the Holy Spirit. And the most effective way to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to obey God. Obedience brings spiritual blessings and spiritual power. And so we find ourselves, once again, cast back on the moral law of God and the Ten Commandments. I also want you to notice something else. The moral law says don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you look on a woman in order to lust after her, you commit adultery in your heart. In other words, the intent is there inside of you. You just lack the correct circumstances to bring it to fruition. But the fruit of the Spirit includes things like love, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. If a man comes to really love and really cherish women, including his own wife, as well as the wives and the daughters of others, 
then lust won't ever be a problem. Because lust is ultimately very unloving to women. And so if your life is reliably producing the fruit of the Spirit in increasing measure, then the law of God really becomes something that's less and less important in your life because you won't even come close to breaking the fifth commandment. And the same with murder. The moral law says don't murder. Jesus says anger and contempt are enough to be the seeds of murder. They break the commandment too. But the fruit of the Spirit is love and gentleness and kindness and patience and self-control. And if I'm possessed by those things, I will be so far from murder that it's not even funny because I I won't dwell in anger. I'll never have contempt for anyone, even those who hurt me or wrong me. Instead, I will be at work in the Spirit trying to produce the good that I can in their lives as much as I possibly can. And I won't need to worry about myself and my reputation and my finite resources and my honor or anything else, because I will have placed all of my confidence in God. And I will know from daily experience of walking with him that he's going to take care of me so I can afford to be generous with other people. And so I can bear their insults and their injuries without retaliating or taking revenge. I can seek to bless them instead. That, friends, is the life that Jesus describes when he talks about rivers of living water flowing out of us. That's the kind of person that I want to be. I'm not there yet at all. I am in the process of becoming that kind of person, but I'm not there yet. And and I don't want to take this journey by myself. I'm not sure a person actually could take this journey by themselves. I, I need the company and I need the help of people who are on the journey too. Can I just ask you? Do you want to come on that journey? Do you actually want to become a person who is possessed by love? The love of God, which is, as Romans says, shed abroad in our hearts. What does that mean? That means that you don't come up with the love. That that God pours that love into your hearts so that you can then give it to everybody else. And when you do that, you'll never wrong anybody. You'll just do the good automatically out of love. That person cuts you off in traffic and, and you'll look at them and you'll, instead of going, you, you know, I'm not saying the words I would say, but you're saying them in your mind, right? And then if, if you feel guilty, you're like, God bless them by giving them a flat tire when nobody's looking, you know, or something like that. You can become the kind of person that says, wow, they must be in a, in a strange place to have the need to drive that way. Maybe they're possessed by anger or impatience. Maybe they're, they're driving around because they just found out that their husband or their wife cheated on them and they're in agony. Maybe they're late for a job that they hate and they're full of stress. Lord, whatever's going on in that person's life, just bless them, just heal them, just repair those relationships and bring about the good. That's the kind of person that you and I want to become. That's where I want to go, and I want to invite you to be with me. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer.